0: Welcome to the very first episode of the sports map podcast We are talking all things sports injuries prevention management rehabilitation and return to performance and who better to kick things off than one of our favorite presenters over the years in jared wade jared is the new head of high performance at the south city rabbitos in the nrl having just moved from his role as head strength and rehabilitation Prior to this, he was a strength coach at Parramatta Eels, the strength and rehab coach at the AFL football team, Essendon Bombers, and then again the performance analyst at the Geelong Cats prior to this in the AFL. That's totalling around 10 years plus Jared spent in professional support. Thanks for joining us today, Jared. Thanks for having us, Nick. Glad to be here. Just to kick us off, why don't you tell us a little bit why you work in professional sport and what do you enjoy most about this? Yeah, the main reason why I wanted to work
1: in professional sport and why I still really enjoy working in professional sport each day is first and foremost, I love, love coaching. Uh, I love coaching athletes, love getting in there, love getting my hands dirty on the gym floor, out on the field, whatever it might be, doing any sort of running drills, conditioning drills, strength drills, um, weights coach. I just love getting in, getting in with the boys and help coach them through. Um, off the back of that when when you sort of go through your your time in sport you, um, you sort of watch individuals improve over time whether it's through something you're doing or something that your whole team's doing behind them and you're watching them improve physically and mentally and that's sort of the kick that you get out of it so I love that hands-on coaching um, I love improving individuals and then obviously spending a lot of my time in team sports you, you then get to watch those individuals come together as a team and, and enhance your team performance and that's the real kick that I get out of working in sport
0: you work in rehab and you have largely worked in rehab and strength over the last 10 years, as I mentioned. What are your key principles, values or philosophies you believe make a successful rehabilitation and what you strive for in working with your athletes?
1: The biggest thing for me in rehab um, is that it's a team approach. Obviously, I'm strength and conditioning background, but rehab sort of takes everyone to, to pull in the same direction to get the right outcome. So for me, that starts with the medical staff, having really good clear communication lines with your physios and doctors um, to understand what that specific injury is, what their needs are in that early phase rehab, um, then in the middle part is where the strength and conditioning starts sort of come into a little bit more in the reconditioning phase, re-strengthening phase, um, and it finishes with it with the sort of skills coaches and the and the football coaches, particularly the head coach, um, and seeing what they're seeing with a, a returning athlete and seeing whether they're ready to go for the demands of the game and the demands of the sport. So that team approach between sort of the off field um, team is is key to me. But, but all the time throughout that process, the player is the priority. So sort of that athlete-centred, everyone supporting them and providing them with the tools to get better um, and to rehabilitate from their injury. So that's sort of the first thing is that you've got to utilise the people around you. No one program is the best program and bounce off each other and complement each other with the skill set that you bring in that team approach around the athlete. Um, another key thing that I think works in successful rehab that I've seen work over, over many years is, is early loading in rehab and, and earning the right to progress through your rehab. And so that sort of starts in the gym. I'll give you a specific example of this, and that might be around a tendon-type injury where they might be not be able to do a lot of a lot of the typical gym work that we'd normally do with them in the early phase, in the acute phase of that injury. But we can certainly start working around, around that region in other ways. So it might be starting um isometrically, low level, building that into some high force output type stuff in an isometric setting, then progress that to working concentrically, regaining some baseline sort of strength markers um, in concentric type movements, uh, moving that into eccentric training and challenging the strength and the and the tolerance of the tissue, and then progressing that to to sort of the speed of movement um, and, and becoming more sport specific. So that's sort of early loading and making sure that you've got your markers at each stage to earn the right to progress onto the next stage works really well. It means that you're not jumping sort of beyond what they're capable of, and you're sort of reading them every day. And you've got enough work into that into that um, affected area or the rehabilitation area quite early in the piece, so that you're not trying to play catch up at any point in time. Another one for me is is, is the exposure to risks, and this is probably more talk in the back end of the rehab now. Um, ex- exposure to the risks um, associated with that injury at the right time. And for me, they are done prior to returning an athlete to training or an athlete to skills. Some examples of that might be, um, we all know that one of the major risks for hamstring injuries is running at max velocity or max sprinting. So as part of that rehabilitation from a hamstring strain, we've got to expose them to that risk um, before they return to team training so that you're confident that they can um, do that task. For an ACL, that may be... Um, something like awkward landings or a specific mechanism that caused that injury. Exposing them to that using things like gymnastics or jump training or land training. Not just perfect all the time but exposing them to those risky movements. For a shoulder injury it might be a poor tackling technique where their arm isn't quite in the right position or they're landing with their arm outstretched. We can't avoid those movements in rehabilitation when they're strong enough to handle them. Later on in the rehab process before they return Exposing them to those risks um, I think helps prevent um, further injury when, once they return to play.
0: To summarise there, we're talking good, clear communication, early loading and exposure to risk are probably your sort of top three uh, philosophical values to a successful rehab. Yeah, definitely. Moving on a little bit, you talked about that sort of mid-stage, uh, the gym-based loading, etc. What are your key performance markers you look for in a return to sport slash return to performance uh, and large, you're probably talking here at gym-based settings uh, as a strength coach. What are you looking for?
1: The first one for me starts with quality of movement. I think all rehab should start with quality of movement and, and regaining that quality movement and good movement patterns. Um, and if they don't have good movement patterns to begin with, then try to instill some of those in that early stage of rehab. And that, and that starts with the gym. Could be some single leg work for a lower limb injury, um, like a single leg squat or a step up or a lunge. just gaining really good quality movement patterns in those in those areas. It could be some early stage sort of running technique-based drills that we do a lot of that stuff in the gym with our sort of medium to long-term rehab players. And the key things I'm looking for with that quality of movement is, is that there's no obvious compensa- compensation happening at any point. That's an objective marker, so it's tough to measure that. It's tough to progress that. But that's where the coach's eye come, comes in a little bit, always assessing your players, making sure they've got good quality of movement, And they've got good range, good strength through range, all the expectations that you might have on them. But there's also no obvious compensation patterns within that quality of movement. Once they've regained quality of movement, then strength is king to me. A lot of strength coaches will say that, but I genuinely believe it. So those return to strength markers, now there might be some baselines that we have for our players that are are minimum standards in the return to strength markers for our sports. But they can also be individual. You know, not everyone's going to fit that same mold. So you might have some stronger athletes, some not so strong athletes. So return to those minimum baseline markers, but then making those 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 markers individual for the athlete as well. So that could be repetition maximum squats. It doesn't have to be a single. It can be a five repetition maximum. It can be a one repetition maximum, but return to some sort of baseline marker. Um, and again, it again, can be some single leg work and you know, some loaded squats or loaded lunges or loaded step-ups can be around a specific injury side as well the return to strength markers so it can be specific hamstring work or or calf work or return to strength endurance markers with number of calf raises or loaded calf raises and once we've got those return to strength markers the final tick off and the thing that i think often gets missed in this is the speed and the power and the velocity of that movement so once they've sort of hit their their strength markers their baseline strength markers or their individual strength markers that you've got on them They've got to start moving that bar quickly and become more sport-specific and and work on the velocity and movement. Generally in team sports, a lot of the injuries happen at high velocities, not slow. So we need to sort of replicate that in the gym. Once they've returned to their strength markers and and they're all nice and strong and ready to go and you think they've they've earned the right to progress, then we can start working on more power-based movements and velocity-type movements like jumping or jump squats, loaded jump squats, bench press throws, and working on some more velocity-based stuff in the gym.
0: Do you think that's some of that speed power, is that something that's often missed, do you think, in people working out there in general sports clubs and other professional sport clubs a lot of the time?
1: I think it can be, and it's the toughest one to identify. Um, There's a lot of technology out there that can track this for you, but it's really tough to identify the speed of movement of some of these activities that we do. I think um, as strength and conditioning coaches, as physiotherapists, we're really, really good at analysing quality of movement. Um, We're really good at correcting that. And building a program around getting someone moving well, whether that's scap control through a shoulder injury or controlling the knee in um, the sort of hip, knee, ankle, joint injury. I think we're really good at that. The return to strength markers, strength coaches generally nail down um, throughout the rehab process. Um, we can use base markers around our major lifts, like the squat, deadlift, squat, chin up, bench pull. But then we can also use some single leg strength markers as well. Um, but I think that power velocity is... Velocity type type work, especially towards the late stage rehab is really, really important. Sometimes we can just be happy that they've regained strength and then we'll just go out and make sure they, they tick off all their sport-specific things outside on the field um, with the skills coaches. But I think we can often bridge the gap and bridge the jump in intensity there by doing some more power-based and more speed-based stuff in the gym and that can be Anything like as simple as doing box jumps for a low limb injury, working on more velocity type movements, or it can be repetitive jumps working on a stretch shortening cycle and those kind of things. I think that can sometimes bridge the gap between some of the work you're doing in the gym and some of the work you're doing that they're going to be required to do on the field.
0: You mentioned technology there. what uh, give us an example of some technology you might use. Obviously you're in professional sports, so that's great, and whether you know any of those ones that might be readily available to just the general population. Something that
1: we use in the gym is we've got a camera-based system called Elite Form set up on every one of our squat racks, and it's in the simplest term measuring the, the speed of a bar. So any sort of barbell-type movement that you do, step up, squat, RDL, bench press, anything where the bar's moving, the camera will record that bar, work out the speed that that bar's moving, and, and with that you can obviously work out how quickly the player's moving underneath that bar. So that's a really good tool for us when we're doing some of this velocity-type type stuff. We know some of the movements that happen on field. We know the certain velocities they are there, so we make sure we try and replicate that in the gym. Now, with that, there's there's plenty of sort of apps out there that you can get on an iPhone that are actually becoming more reliable these days that will measure exactly that. Bar speed in the mm-hmm. gym, just from the right camera positioning with your iPhone or iPad, and, and it, it's becoming quite readily available. You don't need a big, expensive camera system like the ones we have at professional clubs. You can do that stuff um, through an app and just track some of those velocity-type movements of the bar in a gym-based setting um, quite comfortably.
0: What about, uh, let's say, jumping? Give us, an, give us an example of maybe something you might look at from a jumping performance base and, and maybe what technology you might use to uh, capture this.
1: So with our jumping work, we, we use two different pieces of kit to, to analyse our jumping-based work. Um, we have the force plates, which again, aren't so readily available. Um, but we're lucky enough to have two force plates where we analyze different types of jumps, so counter movement jumps, pause squat jumps, and single leg jumps, and they're giving us peak force and peak power measures um, through what's happening on the floor in the force plate. We also have another bit of kit called an Jump system, and it's a light-based system. Um, It's looking at measuring basically time, so time spent in the air, time spent on the ground, and we might use that of system, if we're returning someone and we're looking at some sort of contact time metrics, so repeated effort jumps, double leg, single leg, um, if say it's a foot, calf, ankle injury or we're looking at some sort of reactive strength markers or or reactive movement markers in return to play, we'll get that bit of kid out and measure their contact times on the ground, how high they're jumping, compare that to to the baselines that we have on that particular athlete or the expectations that we have for, for the sport that they need to play
0: you know, the general population out there will hear a lot about uh, your, your functional-based uh, hop tests and things like that. Do you use much of that at all?
1: We'll use a left or right-based um, hop test. Um, obviously, again, we're lucky that we've got the equipment that we can measure that um, really specifically through through light and timing gates, whether that's a single leg jump for height or repeated single leg jumps. We might do 20 jumps, take the best five um, to work out our contact time to flight time ratio on one leg. Having said that, uh, basically, triple, basic triple hop and hold test. Um, generally, never fails to to find any weaknesses that an athlete might have as well. So that simple tape measure can sort of can handle that one for you. Allowed a louder tape measure, do three jumps, make them repeat, and they've got to stick the last jump. Get a left and right measure on that on that player for a lower limb injury. Um, will generally tell you some information whether they one side's compensating for the other side, and, and viewing that movement quality through that hop is really important as well. Sometimes they can reach the desired target might be compensating in other areas or, or other times they just won't be won't be reaching the desired target and we generally like to look at a, around about a 10 to 15% discrepancy as being acceptable, anything over the mat um, um, wouldn't be acceptable um, for our return to play sort of guidelines and markers.
0: Uh, I guess uh, moving on to the later stage parts of rehab and, and once again, you, you know, you're lucky enough to work in professional sport there. What would you say are your key GPS metrics you look at when programming rehabilitation field sessions to, to match those match demands or, uh, you know, the, the game intensity that you need out of that player?
1: So the key ones for me generally come around the intensity of the work they're doing. So, By intensity, I mean the work they're doing at at really high intensities on the field. They're the ones that generally have the biggest toll on the player, are the biggest risk factors for players, and require the most amount of sort of analysis or most amount of ongoing um, spot checking to see whether they're hitting the right target. So that could be high-speed running, whatever cutoff you might use for that, Um, the amount of high-speed running they're doing in each session versus how much they're going to be required to do in their return to game and training performance. The number of sprint meters or the amount of times they sprint, the amount of times they get to 95% max speed, all of those speed markers are really important to us. And we also, through our GPS providers, look at the accelerations and decelerations. It's a really key part of, especially the game of rugby league, is the amount of times they accelerate maximally and decelerate in a game is quite high. So we'll look at those three markers, our high-speed running, our sprint meters and our acceleration and deceleration efforts. They're our key intensity markers, while we're, while we're maximising those markers and making sure we're on top of those and they're returning to performance, we'll keep a close eye on their total run volume and also just the general amount of time they spend training. Um, some of these games in certainly football codes can go for 90 minutes up to two hours. So if the longest running session they've done in, in rehab is 35 minutes, ticking off some speed markers, we, we know that that's just not going to hold up at the two hour and 15 minute mark of a football match. So... We're looking at the amount of time they're spending on their feet in any given session plus their total run volume and trying to match those intensity markers. The final thing I'd say on that with our GPS is we're always looking to push the boundaries on what our athletes can do. And there's a lot of recent research and a lot of recent talk going on about the the worst case scenario in a game. So it's all well and good ticking off your high-speed running and and your total run volumes. And they're doing an 8K session here with X amount of sprints. But the important thing is is the density of that work as well. So how much are they going to be required to do in a short five-minute period on the field versus a short eight-minute period on the field and trying to maximise those short blocks across an entire session so that they're working at really high intensity for five minutes, getting the right amount of repeat effort sprints, repeat effort accelerations, repeat effort contacts over the course of an entire training session. So they're the key ones we look at from the intensity and volume point of view.
0: Once you're out there on the field, how do you go about achieving those maximum intensity periods when it's, say, just yourself uh, and a couple of players? Um, how, do you, how do you sort of formulate that? The first thing
1: that you need to know is you need to know what they are in your given sport, and there's a lot of research around that now. But what is the maximum intensity period? What does it look like? What does it feel like for the athlete? Um, if you get an ISO cam and, and watch a player on a field at any particular time, what, what are the movements that they're doing? And you're trying to replicate that as closely. Now, you can't replicate it without the full 13 on 13 or 18 on 18 players on the field with a decision-making point of view. But you're trying to get as close as possible. It's never a perfect world. So how many sprints are they doing in a certain block? So for us, we would pick a five-minute block, work out how many sprints athletes or that particular athlete will generally do in a five-minute period in their their hardest five-minute period in a game how many accelerations they would do, how much total distance they would cover, and trying to replicate those kind of metrics in a game-specific way. So it's not straight-line running, it's offline running, it's zigzags, it's change of direction, it's multi-direction activities, but it's also ticking off the amount of sprints, the amount of accelerations, the amount of total distance that they're going to require to cover in that game. From a monitoring point of view, we'll monitor that through live GPS um, with us to make sure they're hitting those markers but you can't also discount your coach's eye, um, especially if you've got some experience doing that and you intently know what what your sport's maximum intensity period is going to be. And at some stage, you've got to trust your coach's eye that you, what you're seeing is hard enough, what the players are feeding back to you in that in that session is hard enough um, so that you've ticked that box. And there's nothing more powerful than a player finishing a five-minute block and saying, that's, how exactly, that's exactly how I feel in a game from a lungs and legs point of view. And if, you, if you're getting that right between you and your athlete, then you're, then you're well and truly in, on the right direction. You, don't, you probably don't need all the fancy bells and whistles that come with it. A conversation between you and your athlete about how they feel in a game and how that particular drill made them feel um, is generally good enough to be able to know that you've got somewhere near that maximum intensity period.
0: All right, Joe. Well, you, we've mentioned uh, measurable technology a, a couple of times here in this uh, little brief chat We've had huge advances in that sort of space over the last five to ten years with GPS, and you've had a big big role in that in your previous sort of roles, especially as a performance analyst at Geelong. Looking forward into the future, like what areas do you see that will continue to improve the way we do rehab and to, to really match those demands of the sport? Um, where are we going next in this space of uh, technology?
1: I think certainly in the past probably 10 years, but even more so in the past five years, we've got a real understanding on the mechanical load on the body through the use of GPS, through the use of RPEs, through the use of gym monitoring. We can track everything they do um, at a professional level, certainly, and and we get a really good idea on the external workload on the body through heart rate responses whether that's HRV tracking over time or whether it's just measuring heart rates in training sessions, we can get a really good gauge on the internal response of that training session as well. So we've got the external and the internal load covered, um, but the nature of sport and the nature of our athletes and whether you're working with a professional athlete or whether you're working with a grassroots athlete who goes to work 9 to 5 and then trains in the afternoons, those training sessions make up between 1% and 3% of their total time. Um, spent on this earth. So I think the the, the real advances are going to come looking at the the other 97% of that time, Um, and that could be sleep tracking with the way wearable tech's going these days. We've got some brilliant work happening in sleep tracking and monitoring how um, they are responding daily to these training sessions that we're giving them, how they're responding to about a week's amount of work, how they're responding to about of six-week's amount of work. So I think, we, we, we can, I think that's where we're going to go next is have a look at what is the cost of the training that we're doing with these athletes, certainly the professional level, and measuring the response of that training from a metabolic point of view, their sleep, their food, their response, their stress levels, basically what they're doing outside of the 3% of time we spend actually physically training them where we, we seem to monitor all of that and spend all of our money monitoring that 3%. I think we can get real real big advances from monitoring the other ninety seven percent. And I think that has really big implications for rehabilitation. I've seen it many a time where where a person just might not be getting better from the rehab program that you that you're giving them and you think to yourself, well this hamstring protocol or this calf protocol or shoulder protocol has worked for me in the past and it's got great research behind it and the training that we're doing should be working, but they're just not getting any better through this this process. Um, but it might be something that is going on in their home life. It might be you know, something that's happened with one of their family members or it might be that they're um, not quite happy at home or they're not quite sleeping as well as they could be. And no matter how much training or how much stimulus we give them, if those off-field stresses and off-field um, issues aren't taken care of, they're just not going to improve and get better. So I think that's where we, where we will see a lot more of advances in the next five years, if I was going to make a guess. On where I'd invest my money, um, if I was an investing man, I'd invest in those kind of technologies that are going to be able to tell us over a longer period of time, long both both short term, so daily and long term, a period of three or six or over an entire pre-season or over an entire competitive season, what is the response on the athlete daily through their sleep monitoring, through their metabolic response monitoring and, and their food intake and their stress levels and that kind of thing.
0: All right, Wade, one last question from myself today. I, I guess, uh, as I said, you have worked in professional sport a long time, but uh, this question is around who, who is one of your greatest influences or, or a couple of your greatest influences uh, from a learning point of view who's taught you the most? And um, and I guess a follow-on question from that is uh, who would you like to hear on this podcast next?
1: I've been lucky enough to work with a, with a few different um, clubs, certainly, and within those clubs generally I've, I've had the you could say fortunate or unfortunate circumstances of having a few different head coaches and a few different performance managers. So I've worked with a lot of people, um, in the early days, um, whether it was someone like Paul Haynes at Geelong, who was taking a lot of the rehab stuff there and, and how how hard he was pushing guys daily, um, was a really big influence on what, still what I do today. Um, we had some really good people at Essendon with Justin Crow. um, who, again, was, was, was from that rehab sort of background and, and how hard to push guys and continually push them. At Parramatta and South Sydney more recently, I've, I've been lucky to work for a guy called Paul Devlin, um, who, again, has a big, strong um, emphasis on rehab and, and pushing guys and, and making sure that we're getting that early loading and getting that, and getting that rehab um, sorted and making sure that we're getting them fit and then when they are fit, they stay fit and looking after their, their workload balances um, so I've had a lot of influences on in the life. I try and try and sort of take every experience as a learning experience. So you can go to a conference and talk to the personal trainer from from Fitness First and get a lot out of him, and, or I can talk to the high-performance manager of the Golden State Warriors and get a lot out of him. So try and take every experience as a learning experience. No one's got the right program. Everyone's Everyone's got a program, and there's and there's benefits to what people are doing. So learning's a really, really big thing for me. Um, probably my biggest influence, certainly when it comes to rehab, will be Suki Hobson. Had a working relationship with Suki for two years at Geelong and then for another two years at Essendon. Kept in contact with her. She's now at the Milwaukee Bucks as the head of strength and conditioning. Um, but certainly from a protocol point of view, her ACL rehab, knee rehab and shoulder rehab I think is as good as it gets. Um, She's got a really good balance of of how much work players do on the field versus how much work they do in the gym and all these things that we've spoken about in the last sort of 20 minutes around quality of movement, return to strength markers, a lot of that's based on the work Suki's done and Suki's written about. So if I was going to pick one person to sort of talk to on rehab and and um, and get some ideas on on rehab and and I could talk to Suki for days on rehab and return to play protocols and guidelines and things that she sees and things that she modifies on the fly. So if I was going to say one person to get on the podcast in the future it would be Suki. Hopefully the NBA schedule that she Works in can allow that at some stage in the near future.
0: Well, stay tuned, folks. Hopefully, we can get Suki on board uh, for one of our future podcasts. But uh, for today, uh, I'd love to thank Jared Wade for his time today. Thanks, Jared. And uh, before you do go, I just uh, will point people to the uh, sportsmap.com.au com website. And if you hit on resources, you'll find a lecture from Jared on. High performance rehabilitation from our previous conference in Melbourne on lower limb rehabilitation. Jared will also be talking at our upcoming high performance rehabilitation event in Sydney, held at the New South Wales Institute of Sport, February 2019. So, very limited tickets still available to see uh, Wadey there present alongside uh, Andrew Gray and Jordan Menegucci from Spain, and, and Craig Purden from the AS, amongst others. So, we're looking forward to seeing you then as well, Jared
1: less about the lectures in those weekends i find it more about the conversations that you have in between sessions so um if you can get along to it please do well
0: that's all uh, from us today guys and uh we look forward to having you along next time thanks again Jarrett. thanks nick